Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Nazmo Dirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. So we're back for the new year. Thanks very much for tuning in. Crisis Group has some good news for 2022. We have a new president and CEO, Comfort Eero, who we're all thrilled is going to lead Crisis Group into its next chapter. Comfort will join us next week to talk about some of what we're watching and worried about in the year ahead. This week, though, we're going to talk about Iran, its nuclear program, and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, or nuclear deal. President Biden has been uh, very clear in saying that uh, if Iran comes back into full compliance with its obligations under the JCPOA, uh, the United States uh, would do the same thing. Uh, And then we would use that uh, as a platform uh, to build with our allies and partners uh, what we call the longer uh, and stronger agreement, and to deal with a number of other issues. In 2018, then-President Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. from that nuclear deal. The deal, which in essence capped Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief, was concluded in 2015 by Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama, together with other members of the U.N. Security Council plus Germany, so the P5 plus one, as well as Iran itself. President Joe Biden came to office promising to get back into the deal. We just heard Secretary of State Anthony Blinken talking about the administration's approach. Initially, Biden's team lost time posturing about who should make the first move and refusing to make goodwill gestures. Still, for a few months, talks made some progress. Then in June, Ebrahim Raisi won Iran's presidential election, giving hardliners control of all the Islamic Republic's key power centers. After a five-month hiatus, Iran returned to the table. But Raisi is now driving a harder bargain. While Raisi has said he intends to continue talks in Vienna to save the agreement, he's made it clear he won't do it at the cost of too many concessions. What we've seen so far is um, Iran losing precious time by advancing totally new positions that are inconsistent with a return to the the JCPOA. We continue in this hour, on this day, to pursue diplomacy because it remains at this moment the best option, but we are actively engaging with allies and partners on alternatives. Iran's nuclear program has come on leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. In response to Trump pulling out of the nuclear deal and its tougher sanctions, Iran stepped up its nuclear development. That's only accelerated under Biden. When the nuclear deal came into force, Iran's breakout time, the time it would take to enrich enough fissile material for a bomb, was around 12 months. It's now estimated at only a few weeks. Talks that are ongoing in Vienna so far have made only limited headway. We just heard Antony Blinken again talking about it. There's a real possibility that the parties can't get back to compliance with the JCPOA, the talks collapse, that Iran's nuclear program continues and the US faces a hard choice. 
can either accept Iran as a threshold nuclear state, one that's able to build a bomb even if not yet having done so, or it can try to stop that happening, which could well mean military strikes on Iran. So how much hope can we hold out for the JCPOA? And how worried should we be if it falls apart? Today we're joined by Ali Vyas, Crisis Group's Iran director. Ali probably knows more than anyone about the JCPOA and its history. He's the author of a report we have coming out on Monday that marks the sixth anniversary of the nuclear deal and looks at prospects for getting back to it. Ali, welcome back on. Great to be back. So, Ali, why don't we start? The, the parties are, as we speak, in Vienna, trying to thrash things out. Could you give us a sense of where things stand? Sure. Uh, Richard, to get a better sense of where we are right now in Vienna, let, let's take a step back and look at uh, the dynamics over the past few months. In fact, the last time I was on the show, uh, it was right before Iran's presidential elections and uh, Iran and P5 plus one were in the sixth round of negotiations that had started as of April. And they were actually pretty close to the finish line. Uh, There were still six, seven brackets in the text that remained, uh, areas of disagreement. uh, And uh, those were difficult issues to resolve, but they weren't far from finalizing a deal either. Then President Ibrahim Raisi was elected in Iran and uh, negotiations were put on pause for five months. And during these five months, Iran dramatically uh, accelerated its nuclear advancements. Uh, And finally, when it came back to the table uh, at the end of November, it adopted a really uh, tough approach. Basically, uh, the Iranian negotiating team took a step back from all the nuclear measures that uh, their predecessors had agreed to uh, and added uh, significantly to Iran's sanctions relief demands. And this created a situation of deadlock because in the absence of any Iranian flexibility, it was very difficult for the U.S. and the Europeans to show flexibility. Uh, And finally, through uh, Russian mediation, there was a middle ground solution in which uh, Iran came back to where uh, the nuclear measures were uh, back in June. Uh, and in return, uh, uh, the West agreed to add some of Iran's uh, suggested text on sanctions relief into the master text, but in brackets. So they're open uh, to negotiations. And as of the eighth round that started at the end of no- uh, December, um, the parties really started addressing the substance of negotiations. But progress is incremental um, and extremely slow. And if we are still uh, in a dynamic in which the pace of Iran's nuclear advancements is much faster than the pace of diplomacy, I'm afraid the U.S. is going to pull the plug uh, on these negotiations by the end of the month. And Ali, we'll come in a moment to the calculations in Tehran and in, in Washington. But could you sort of give a sense of what, what are the main sticking points at the moment in Vienna? Well, there are plenty of sticking points uh, on both sides. Uh, Iranians want uh, all of the sanctions that were imposed under the Trump administration to be lifted, regardless of whether they were nuclear in nature or not. For instance, they want sanctions related to human rights violations or ballistic missiles or regional activities uh, lifted as well. Uh, and they also want the U.S. to guarantee that it would no longer use sanctions to undermine Iran's ability to benefit from the economic dividends of the agreement uh, and would never again renege on the deal. So they want ironclad guarantees that simply do not exist in the U.S. legal and political system. The Iranians also are keen to have discussions about compensation for the economic damages that President Trump's policy has inflicted upon Iran. Um, and they also uh, are reluctant to accept a U.S. demand for Iran to commit to follow-on negotiations to get a longer and stronger nuclear deal once the JCPOA uh, is restored. On the Western side, there are also demands uh, that Iran would roll back its nuclear program to take into account the irreversible advancements that Iran has made, especially in the area of advanced centrifuges. And then there is also the question of sequencing. Uh, Iran, uh, having been burned by a U.S. withdrawal from the agreement, this time around wants the U.S. to go first, lift the sanctions, allow Iran to verify that sanctions relief is effective, and only then roll back its nuclear program, something that is extremely difficult for the Biden administration to sell in Washington. So, Ali, can you help us to better understand what the calculations look like right now in Tehran? Does Raisi really want to get back to a deal? And how do you see Tehran understanding the stakes right now? 
so look, I see more continuity than change, uh, at least at the strategic level uh, uh, in Iran, uh, meaning that I don't think that it's President Raisi who doesn't want a deal. I think back in June, the system in Iran was not convinced that what the U.S. had put on the table uh, would really uh, advance Iran's uh, national interest in the sense that uh, Iranians are, are very doubtful that the U.S. is willing or capable uh, to provide effective and sustainable sanctions relief. This is because uh, international firms were reluctant to engage the Iranian market even in 2016 when there was a Obama administration who was very proactively trying to normalize Iran's trade with the outside world as part of its commitments under the JCPOA. And even then, companies were hesitant because uh, the U.S. was in a presidential election year and Republicans had promised to tear up the agreement if they take over uh, the White House and Congress. And in fact, this happened in, in 2017. President Trump came to office and he withdrew from the deal. So the snapback of U.S. sanctions is no longer just a hypothetical. It has happened. Uh, and so that renders a lot of companies reluctant to re-engage uh, uh, the Iranian market uh, with the specter of Republicans taking over Congress in a year or taking over the White House in three years. Um, so uh, the Iranians believe that because of this hesitancy, they are going to get maybe 50% of the benefits of the JCPOA. But in practice, the West wants them uh, to implement 100% of their nuclear commitments. And this uh, sense of um, frustration, I think, has continued into the Raisi administration. But this time around, the difference is... Uh, the Iranian negotiating team is led by uh, critics uh, and enemies of the JCPOA. And so it's much harder uh, to come to an agreement with them. So I think President Raisi himself understands that uh, the deep economic troubles that Iran have uh, could not really be uh, addressed in the absence of sanctions relief. And so he is keen on getting an agreement, but not at any price. And the system would not allow him to get a deal at any price. And you think, Ali, there's this sort of sense in Tehran that maybe they've weathered the worst of the storm, that maybe they can kind of rely on Russia, China, other other countries in the region to pick up some of the slack on the economy, and that maybe the economic impact of accelerated sanctions, of stronger sanctions, maybe, you know, Iran can actually weather that now. Look, there are two schools of thought in Iran. Uh, I would say President Raisi himself is in the more pragmatic camp of Iranian officials who understand that the country's economy can survive uh, even if sanctions are tightened, uh, but it cannot thrive. And for them, uh, who are now in control of all instruments of power, the conservatives, the hardliners in Iran, uh, basically uh, uh, they have no one to blame if they're unable to improve the country's economic situation. And President Raisi's would not be as much of a success as he had hoped for. There are also other crises that Iran is facing, like an, a severe environmental uh, crisis that has led to uh, nationwide protests. And it's really difficult to address the myriad of crises that the country is facing in the absence of sanctions relief. There is, however, a more hardliner group within the conservative camp uh, who basically believe that uh, Iran has already put the peak of sanctions behind it. Among these groups, without any doubt, there are also those who have a vested economic interest in the continuation of sanctions because these are uh, the people who benefit from the black market and smuggling. Um, and so, uh, you know, there is a debate between these two camps. But I think at the end of the day, the same motivation uh, that led uh, the system in Iran, not just the government, to agree to the JCPOA, this desire to put the country's economy on a stable footing at a sensitive time in Iran's history uh, when uh, the succession of the supreme leader looms large uh, is still there. Uh, and so I think at the end of the day, if Iranians can be persuaded that uh, they would at least get uh, more benefits from the agreement than was the case uh, in the past, I think they would like to come back to compliance. I don't think Iran has made the strategic decision that the JCPOA is no longer in its interest. So Ali, I think for many of us who aren't uh, experts in the technical side of this debate, it's hard to understand what it means when we say that the nuclear program has significantly accelerated. Can you help us understand what exactly has changed over the last few years? 
Sure. Look, Iran stayed in the agreement when President Trump withdrew in 2018 and complied until a year later. But as of May 2019, it started in an incremental way to reduce its compliance. And then in 2020, continued to ratchet up its nuclear program. But in 2021, we really witnessed a dramatic expansion. Uh, there were a few uh, events that basically catalyzed this acceleration. Uh, first, in uh, November of 2020, uh, allegedly Israel uh, assassinated a top Iranian nuclear scientist that led Iranian parliament to pass a legislation that mandated a, a, a rapid expansion of Iran's uh, nuclear program uh, and also ratcheted down uh, the inspections of the program. Uh, so even before President Biden came to office, Iran started enriching uh, at 20% level, uh, which is almost uh, 90% of the effort that is needed to enrich uranium to weapons grade. Then in April of 2021, there was a sabotage of uh, Iran's main nuclear facility in Natanz, again, allegedly by Israel. And that led Iran to start enriching uranium to 60% which is 99% of the effort needed to enrich uranium to weapons grade. According to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, only countries that have nuclear weapons enrich to 60%. In addition to that, Iran also started uh, installing uh, a lot of advanced centrifuges. Some of these mach machines are really powerful, uh, uh, five to ten times more powerful than the machines that Iran was authorized to use under uh, the JCPOA. Uh, and the combination of these two things, meaning a, a much higher level of enrichment and much more powerful machines, means that uh, the amount of time that it takes Iran to enrich enough fissile material for a single nuclear weapon uh, has shrunk significantly. When President Trump walked into the Oval Office, that timeline was about 12 months. Currently, it's about three weeks. And if Iran's nuclear advancements continue at this pace, it would become a matter of days something that basically uh, U.S. intelligence calls a margin of error, meaning that before they can really verify that the breakout is happening or mobilize a military response, uh, the breakout might have already happened. So, Ali, in, in that light, I mean, is it even feasible now that the negotiations in Vienna would result in a deal that got Iran back to the one-year breakout time? Is that even on the table anymore? Look, probably the 12-month breakout time is not uh, restorable because of the advancements that Iran has made in research and development and the knowledge that Iran has gained, which is basically irreversible. But if you still have a 10-month or 8-month breakout time, that's still plenty of time uh, for a country that is under rigorous monitoring uh, of the International Atomic Energy Agency to detect in a matter of, uh, of a few days any attempt to dash towards nuclear weapons. The, the whole concept of breakout time itself is quite arbitrary. Uh, if you talk to American, French, and Israeli technical experts, they all come up with different numbers. But again, it was a, a useful yardstick to create sufficient distance between a civilian nuclear program and a potential military uh, nuclear program. And I would say, even if the breakout time is no longer 12 months, uh, extending it significantly by a few folds uh, would meet all the non-proliferation concerns that the West has. So let's uh, shift a bit our focus from Tehran uh, to Washington. What has the Biden administration's policy been to this? Um, so the Biden administration came to office on the promise of returning to the JCPOA and building on it. So President Biden never talked about uh, restoring the JCPOA without in parallel talking about a need for a longer and stronger nuclear deal. I think the administration committed a strategic mistake early on uh, that it did not take any steps to signal to the Iranians. It was actually uh, stepping aside from maximum pressure policy. There was no mea culpa on the side of the Americans. Uh, there was uh, no goodwill gesture to, for instance, uh, release some of Iran's frozen assets to, to allow the country to buy vaccines in the middle of the pandemic. 
So that basically gave the Iranians the impression that the Biden administration is trying to extract more concessions. But there was also a lot of posturing, uh, putting the onus uh, on Iran to go first. And that really deepened uh, the mistrust and I think further entrenched Iran's position. So uh, by the time that the negotiations started, uh, Iran had already adopted a much uh, tougher approach uh, and had a set of really unrealistic uh, demands. And from that point on, I really think the onus uh, has been mostly on Iran. They put the negotiations on pause while they were really expanding their nuclear program. The Biden administration has not, in parallel, uh, engaged in a similar effort uh, to accumulate more leverage. Uh, but that this is precisely why its uh, patience is is wearing thin right now, because uh, it really believes that uh, Iran has used the negotiations as a cover to strengthen its hand to extract more concessions from the U.S., and uh, it believes that it now has to join that cycle of escalation. Again, the problem is uh, we've seen this movie before. This will be similar to the race of sanctions against centrifuges that uh, existed prior to the JCPOA, and it's a, a very dangerous gamble. So, Ali, it's true now that you know the onus is on Iran, but over the past year, the Biden administration has also not lifted the sanctions that Trump imposed, but imposed its own sets of sanctions, albeit for different things other than the nuclear program, but imposed its own sanctions on Iran. But the debate in Washington around this is really very, very difficult. The space that the Biden administration has to offer concessions or to do anything that might allow it to be painted as weak by Republicans, even by more hawkish Democrats, it's quite a fraught debate in, in Washington. Isn't that sort of part of the story of the past year? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the JCPOA, the Iran issue in general, uh, remains as polarizing in, in Washington as it was the case in 2015 in the run-up to the JCPOA. And because the Biden administration's uh, agenda was primarily focused on domestic issues in the first year, the administration was really reluctant to take a lot of risks on foreign policy, uh, especially on Iran. And it's true that they did not offer any sanctions relief and, and even impose new sanctions, although I would say uh, these new sanctions are not as draconian as was the case uh, under the Trump administration. And in many cases, they were uh, justified in the sense that, for instance, when there was a plot uh, that was revealed that the Iranians were trying to kidnap a U.S. citizen, that obviously is going to be met with U.S. penalties. But if you talk to the Biden administration, they would also say, uh, that Iranian actions, both in terms of nuclear escalation and also their activities in the region, really left no space for the administration uh, to take a constructive step in the sense that all the intelligence of uh, rocket attacks against uh, U.S. presence in Iraq and Syria, uh, supply of arms to the Houthis in uh, Yemen, and again, uh, the rapid nuclear escalation that Iran was engaged in would have made it almost impossible, politically speaking, for the Biden administration to make any unilateral concessions to Iran. So that's Tehran and Washington. How do things look from Europe? I mean, obviously, in Europe, there was a big divergence, a lot of disagreement with what President Trump did. Have the US and European positions now on, on the JCPOA on, on, on getting Iran back to compliance, have they largely converged? Yes, they have. Um, I think there is almost no gap between the U.S. Uh, and European position right now. They both believe that uh, Iran is the inflexible party at fault, and the Europeans uh, are playing even a bigger role because, uh, as you know, Iranians have refused to engage in direct negotiations with, uh, with the U.S., uh, and so the Europeans and the European Union uh, are the main uh, intermediaries, and they're the ones who take messages back and forth. I think the Europeans uh, are also running out of patience, but um, they're also putting the onus of coming up with innovative ideas to meet some of Iran's demands, mostly on the U.S. And as we say in our upcoming reports, they can't uh, be the bystanders here. They also have responsibilities and have to come up with uh, solutions because one of the reasons Iran uh, actually engaged in this nuclear escalation as of 2019 uh, was that uh, European efforts to try to compensate them for the effects of U.S. withdrawal came to naught. China, Russia, obviously the other part of the P5 plus one, they've been more supportive of Tehran, generally blame the U.S. for pulling out, but they also obviously don't want Iran to have a more advanced nuclear program. How are they viewing uh, the imperative of getting back to, to, to compliance? 
Yeah, uh, Russia and China's position is actually really fascinating uh, in the sense that, as you said, neither want Iran with a bomb nor want Iran bombed. But there are differences between uh, Russia and China's position. Obviously, the great power relations is not what it was in 2015 when the JCPOA was concluded. Uh, now there's much more tension between Russia uh, and the West and also between China and the United States. The Russians are much more experienced than the Chinese in compartmentalizing their differences with the United States. They've done this in the past uh, on JCPOA-related issues, and they're still doing it. And actually, the Russians are playing a very constructive role. But uh, the Chinese are kind of a wild card here. They're fence-sitters. Sometimes they side more with the Iranians. Sometimes they uh, put some pressure on the Iranians to, to be more pragmatic at the negotiating table. The Biden administration has clearly stated uh, that it is uh, trying to resolve this nuclear issue to bring uh, stability to the Middle East so that it can pivot away and focus on competition with China. Uh, well, why would China help the U.S. achieve that objective, right? But again, at the same time, a proliferation threat uh, in the Middle East uh, or a new conflict in the Middle East does not really benefit China. Because again, you know, the fear is once Iran gets the nuclear uh, weapon, uh, that uh, other countries in the region, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey, Egypt, they will all uh, uh, move in that direction. And that would destabilize a region that China depends on for its energy imports. And let me add that China on its own, if we end up in a situation where, where the nuclear talks collapse, uh, it can really make or break uh, whatever U.S. policy uh, emerges in the sense that if there is a uh, effort to tighten the sanctions, China can throw a lifeline to the Iranian economy because it is much less risk averse when it gets to U.S. sanctions. And that could allow Iran's economy to remain afloat just on its own. So let's talk a bit about the perspectives of the Saudis and the Emiratis. They've traditionally been very opposed to the deal and seem supportive of Trump's approach to maximum pressure. How do they view the risk today? Um, that's another uh, fascinating uh, change. In 2015, uh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, they were actually lobbying in Washington, spending millions of dollars to try to prevent the JCPOA. But I think during the past few years, they have realized that a no-deal situation is even worse. When President Trump pursued the maximum pressure policy and Iran started lashing out, they were caught in the crossfire between Iran and the United States. We all remember the spectacular attack on uh, Saudi Aramco, which took half of Saudi oil exports uh, off market uh, in a matter of minutes. We saw the tit-for-tat attacks uh, in the maritime realm. Uh, attacks on tankers. Uh, and that led the Emiratis first uh, to try to de-escalate uh, with Iran and open channels of communication. Uh, and when the Biden administration came to office, the Saudis uh, followed suit and have basically had four rounds of negotiations uh, with Iran. They're no longer really opposed to the JCPOA and have uh, joined the U.S. And, and the West in trying to actually dangle the prospect of enhanced trade and improved diplomatic uh, political relations as one of the incentives on the table that Iran would benefit from uh, if it comes back into compliance. And obviously, uh, this helps because one of the problems we had in 2015, I remember I used to say the good news is we have a nuclear deal. The bad news is that we only have a nuclear deal. Uh, and there was always the risk of regional tension spilling over into the implementation of the agreement. And that indeed did happen. And now it, it, if we get uh, to restore the JCPOA, I think the regional context is much more conducive to uh, build on uh, the nuclear deal and try to come up with bilateral or multilateral uh, arrangements in the region that uh, could result in de-escalation of uh, conflicts in the region uh, and initial discussions uh, towards a regional security arrangement that is more stable so let's talk briefly about Israel. I think it's often difficult from the outside to understand the difference between the statements coming from Tel Aviv versus some of what we hear about the views of senior officials on the best approach to Iran. How do you see Israel viewing the situation now? So it's interesting that uh, you see a lot of former Israeli officials coming out, uh, sort of a mirror image of Arab Gulf countries' uh, position admitting that the no-deal situation uh, was much worse for Israel, too. I mean, the reality is 
Again, Iran has never been closer to the verge of nuclear weapons than it is right now. The reality is that uh, the, the Bennett administration is still not supportive of the JCPOA, prefers that the U.S. continues to keep Iran in a box and try to set back the nuclear program through uh, overt or covert military action. Uh, but I think there is a domestic political dynamic here as well, in the sense that Bibi Netanyahu is now the leader of the opposition, and uh, the Bennett administration just uh, cannot afford to be seen or portrayed uh, by Netanyahu uh, as soft or weak on Iran. And there is another difference uh, which is key here compared to 2015 under the Obama administration, is that now there's much more uh, and closer coordination Uh, between Israel and the U.S. uh, on everything, on the negotiations, uh, as well as on other policy options. And so I I really can't imagine a scenario in which Israel would try to uh, act as spoiler uh, during the the diplomatic negotiations, or that it would take uh, any kind of unilateral military action uh, against Iran if uh, the talks collapse. Ali, let's let's say that the talks collapse and come back to how to avert that in a moment. But let's say the the talks collapse. Obviously, then Iran's nuclear program, which, as you made very clear, is has advanced fast. It would continue apace. That would have implications for proliferation in the region, potentially, that you mentioned. The Saudis, the Turks, Egyptians might also want to develop their own nuclear capability. It would present the US with a pretty stark dilemma, right? I mean, either accept Iran's nuclear development, Iran as a threshold nuclear state, so one with the capacity to weaponize even if it hasn't yet, or in essence use military force or use other measures to try to stop that happening. Do you want to say a word or two about what that choice would look like? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the plan B options really range from unattractive to outright ugly in the sense that uh, you know, what, what the U.S. Uh, has already started doing, uh, which are the really early steps of, uh, of a plan B, uh, is that it can double down on enforcement of existing sanctions because uh, President Trump really maxed out uh, U.S.'s leverage uh, by sanctioning uh, anything that moves in Iran. Uh, so uh, there is really little headspace left for the U.S. to, to uh, impose additional sanctions, but it can double down on enforcement of existing sanctions, and that will have an economic impact on Iran, like trying to put pressure on Iranian oil exports to China or uh, some of the financial channels that exist between Iran and the UAE. The next step, which might come uh, in a few weeks, is an attempt by uh, the European participants to the JCPOA uh, to snap back the UN sanctions uh, and then also snap back uh, their own multilateral sanctions. And that would have uh, certainly a psychological impact on the Iranian market as well. But again, it's not going to break the Iranian economy and uh, the Iranians are likely to survive it. Uh, and then the US and the West are basically out of leverage. Uh, and the only options that remain uh, are basically to try to uh, uh, resort to force. The problem with uh, taking military action uh, and even using a credible threat of military force uh, is that it really strengthens the hands of those in Iran who say that Iran needs the ultimate deterrent, uh, that North Korea never faces uh, such a threat because it is already a nuclear weapon state. So if indeed there is a military strike on Iran's nuclear facilities, which is actually not a simple undertaking given the uh, expansive and geographically uh, dispersed nature of the program. A lot of these sites are in fortified bunkers, uh, and Iran obviously is a country that has uh, an impressive military capability, uh, both for retaliation and also on the defensive side. The risk with military action is that uh, once Iran is attacked, it has paid the economic price of a nuclear weapon and it has been attacked. So at that point, it basically has nothing to lose other than getting out of the non-proliferation treaty and developing a nuclear weapon. So a strike might become a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. So you're absolutely right. It is a dilemma. And the reality is that there are no good options when we get to plan B. And that's why uh, I, I think it's still essential to focus on trying to save Plan A, and there is still a narrow path forward for achieving that objective. 
And Ali, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But can I just push again? I mean, you, you laid out very well the dangers of, of military strikes. I mean, you could also talk about the risk that Iran escalates across the region through its own forces, through missile attacks, through its local allies. Obviously, lots of perils involved in military action. But if you compare that risk to the risk of Iran being able to produce a weapon, to have a shorter breakout time, what that would mean for proliferation in the region, what that might mean for Iran's confidence in the region. If you could, with military strikes, knock back the program by two to four years, buy some extra time, you know, notwithstanding all the risks, is that really a worse option? Yeah, so let me make two points. Number one is the fact that uh, whenever bad guys have been able to get nuclear weapons, the rest of the world has learned to live with it. I mean, the Soviets, the Chinese, the North Koreans, uh, the Pakistanis, uh, and so on. So this is not the first time that, that the world and the West in particular will have to learn to live with a nuclear uh, threshold state. I think in the case of Iran, there is a military option, but there is no military solution to this dilemma, uh, meaning that a military strike would at best buy some time, but it would at the same time create the political uh, incentive in Iran to actually get the ultimate deterrent. U.S. and Israeli intelligence right now are saying that there is no sign of that political decision. Taking action that would create space for that decision to be made is a mistake. And, and as you said, there are also additional risks that a tit-for-tat over the nuclear issue could quickly escalate and result in a region-wide conflict with disastrous consequences. If uh, indeed Iran has created uh, both its ballistic missile program, uh, which has uh, a very long reach uh, even into Eastern Europe and a formidable accuracy, as we saw uh, during the attacks on uh, U.S. bases in Iraq after uh, U.S. killed General Soleimani, and a widespread network of partners and proxies throughout the region, and they believe that if Iran, which some of them call the mothership, is attacked, they would be next. So they would also want to take preemptive or preventative action if Iran is struck. And so all of a sudden, you might have a situation in which thousands of missiles are being fired into Israeli cities. Israeli uh, nuclear facilities could be targeted both by Iranian ballistic missiles and by Hezbollah's rockets and missiles. Uh, Iran might target Gulf Arab states, their energy infrastructure. The price of oil would go through the roof. The U.S. would probably retaliate even stronger against Iran. And of course, in the fog of war, there are uh, a lot of possibilities of miscalculation. So, you know, when I compare those risks with the risks of a threshold nuclear Iran, uh, I think it's a clear choice that military strike uh, will bring about the worst of all worlds. Second point, which is, I think, even more important, is that uh, short breakout time is not the same thing as having a nuclear weapon. There is still two other elements that goes into weaponization. One is the uh, weaponization effort itself. It is like if you have the ingredients of the cake, that doesn't mean that you have the cake. You still have to bake it, right? You still have to fashion uh, nuclear, uh, highly enriched nuclear material into a functioning uh, nuclear weapon and then put it in the cone of a ballistic missile. You have to test it. And again, there is consensus uh, among Western intelligence that that effort in and of itself would take a year or a year and a half. So I don't think we should panic. Uh, but again, the risks are significant that this process might spiral out of control. And that's why uh, every opportunity uh, to save uh, Plan A should be seized upon. And Ali, what would you say to the argument that the US in the end killed, what, the second most important man in Iran? They killed, as you said, Qasem Soleimani, the Revolutionary Guards commander. And sure, Iran fired missiles into bases on which there were US troops. It seems to have only narrowly avoided killing US soldiers, but still, killing Soleimani didn't start a war. So if that didn't do it, couldn't the US get away with strikes on, on Iran's nuclear facilities? So that's the thing. Uh, the difference is that Soleimani was killed on Iraqi soil, not on Iranian soil. In the past four decades of enmity between Iran and the U.S., uh, there has never been an attack on Iranian soil. And that would basically bring this uh, conflict to a new height. Um, and Iranians would have to uh, take dramatic action to retaliate. 
I know you're uh, playing devil's advocate here, Richard, but uh, this there is actually uh, a, a school of thought, both in Tehran and Washington, who believe that a confrontation could be contained based on uh, January 2020 experience. But, uh, you know, if we look back at that experience, it was a miracle that no American was killed in Iranian retaliatory attacks uh, in al-Assad base in Iraq. If you look at the interview that uh, the head of CENTCOM has done recently with the New Yorker, uh, he says that it was sheer luck that no American was killed. An Iranian attack was aimed at killing Americans. There was recently another attack by drones and rockets uh, against the U.S. Um, base in Al-Tanf, Syria, again aimed at killing Americans. And, uh, you know, if that happens, obviously we are in a uh, different territory. And in that fog of war in, uh, in January 2020, Iranians uh, mistakenly shot down a passenger jet, killing 176 uh, innocent civilians. So there is always risk of miscalculation. And again, I think attacking Iran on its soil uh, would really change the nature of this game. So let me add one more point. This is actually, for me, a, a, a one of the biggest concerns which is that uh, a military strike in Iran at this moment is likely to be seized upon by the uh, military in Iran, especially the Revolutionary Guards, I think, uh, to seize power. So we are in a situation that the Supreme Leader is 82 years old and the clerical establishment has been discredited. Uh, the Revolutionary Guards it is at the peak of its power. And a strike on Iran would have a rally around the flag effect and would also allow the revolutionary guards to push aside the clerics and seize power. And that in and of itself, I think, would have negative consequences uh, that would have a generational impact. And you think that the only way to sort of set back Iran's nuclear program would be a military strike. So the sort of sabotage options or the cyber options or the sort of assassinations that have reportedly been happening, you know, they don't have the same effect in the end. The, the choice is between military action or living with it. If we look at the record of sabotage or uh, cyber attacks, uh, every time they've happened, Iran has been able to quickly recover. Uh, they have at best uh, set back the program by a few weeks or a few months. And as a way of deterring any future uh, covert operations every time Iran has reacted to these attacks by uh, accelerating its nuclear program and taking it to new heights. Uh, and so there is this view among some in Washington and in Jerusalem that this could become a mowing the lawn kind of effect that uh, repeated every time Iran recovers from an attack, there could be a new one and it would become basically a, a constant effort at keeping Iran's nuclear program from crossing the Rubicon. <clears throat> the reality is uh, every time Iran also learns how to better fortify its nuclear program, how to close uh, intelligence loopholes. Uh, and so there is a limit to how far these operations can actually go. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're maxed out of sanctions and diplomacy is uh, deadlocked um, and covert operations have limited uh, impact, all you're left with is a military action, which, as I said, will uh, bring about the worst of all worlds. Ali, let me ask you to reflect a bit on the human dimensions of this issue. I think sometimes the policy debates around this can sound a bit like a chess game where all the actors are making strategic choices that are happening in sort of an abstract dimension. But can you talk to us a bit about what do these various options mean for the everyday life of Iranians? You know, I remember uh, discussing with U.S. officials uh, earlier this year about the failure of goodwill gestures towards the Iranians. And I was told uh, repeatedly that uh, Iran's actions in the region and also in the nuclear realm really prevents uh, a goodwill gesture. And my answer was, uh, you know, if you look at the past uh, few uh, months that the Biden administration has been in office, no American has been killed as a result of Iranian actions in the region. But we cannot say the same thing about Iranians, because sanctions in the middle of a pandemic have had an impact on Iran's ability to fight the COVID-19 pandemic, and it has cost Iranian lives. According to Brookings Institution, at least uh, more than 10,000 Iranians lost their lives because of shortages of medicine and vaccines that were directly related 
to sanctions. You know, Iranians, as I said, they have a resilient economy that has survived uh, the pressure of sanctions. But uh, there are reports of uh, severe shortages. The prices of food and medicine have increased uh, astronomically. And uh, there are Iranian families who have not been able to afford to buy meat for months and months. Uh, and even some basic staples are becoming unaffordable uh, for ordinary Iranians. So in practice, the U.S. sanctions have really devastated the middle class in Iran, which ironically is the best ally that the West has. Uh, it is a middle class that is well-educated, open-minded, pro-Western in general, and has been devastated as a result of Western policy towards Iran in the past few years. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously, if there is a uh, further tightening of sanctions, uh, this would be quite reminiscent of what happened to Iraq, I would say, uh, as a result of sanctions uh, between the 1990s and, and uh, invasion in 2003, which basically sanctions devastated the fabric of Iraqi society while actually empowering the hard men in Iraq who remained in power until military invasion toppled them. So Ali, you've talked about the dangers of failing to get back to the JCPOA. How do you see a path to the sequencing of sanctions relief and Iran curbing its nuclear activities? How would you advise the diplomats meeting in Vienna a way that's acceptable to both sides to get back to the deal? Um, so first of all, if diplomacy is to succeed, um, I think either the pace of diplomacy should increase significantly in the next few days, uh, or the pace of Iran's nuclear advancements uh, should decrease so that there is more time and space uh, for resolving the outstanding issues. A second point is that uh, there is definitely a need for more flexibility on both sides and acceptance on both sides that they can't get everything they want, uh, but they can get enough of what they need there are a set of very concrete uh, recommendations in the report uh, on the scope of sanctions, uh, sequencing, uh, question of guarantees, etc. Uh, but it basically amounts to the U.S. Uh, and, and Europeans providing assurances, not guarantees that are just not on the cards, but uh, assurances uh, that Iran would be able, at least in the next three years that Biden administration is in office or during the duration of a democratic administration, uh, would be able to reap the benefits of the agreement, obviously, as long as uh, its own uh, nuclear commitments uh, are fulfilled as verified by the IAEA. Second point is that uh, it really does not make sense for the U.S. to hold on to some non-nuclear related sanctions that have very little impact on curbing Iran's uh, regional or ballistic missile activities. Uh, and so I think the U.S. should be more uh, open to providing additional sanctions relief without really a wholesale lifting of all sanctions. And because of uh, the fact that uh, the onus is really on the U.S., which is primarily responsible for the current uh, state of affairs when it gets to the JCPOA, uh, given President Trump's uh, original sin, the U.S. should go first in offering sanctions relief in areas that are actually open to verification, and that is primarily oil exports, all the uh, related services, Iran's ability to repatriate oil revenues, and also Iran's access to its frozen assets. Now, it's impossible politically to imagine the U.S. providing all of the sanctions relief up front while Iran's nuclear program is still expanding. So in parallel to U.S. taking those steps, Iran should freeze its nuclear program, not necessarily roll it back, but freeze it and allow uh, time and space, uh, a few days maybe, or a few weeks uh, for verification that it can indeed, as proof of concept, sell its oil and repatriate the revenue. Uh, and then additional sanctions could be rolled back in parallel to Iranian steps in the same fashion. Uh, on the Iranian side, I think it really does not make sense for them to try to hold on to some of the advanced centrifuges and resist uh, either mothballing their production lines or basically destroying them. Uh, because they already have the knowledge and they can reproduce these centrifuges whenever the limitations of the program fade away, given the JCPOA sunsets. And uh, the Iranians should also resolve their issues with the IAEA, because at the end of the day, uh, this is a nuclear deal. And without uh, the agency being able to provide uh, full clarification, uh, it's very difficult to provide Iran's nuclear program with a bill of health. 
And so, Ali, maybe maybe you could just end on Iran, the, the sort of looming standoff over Iran's nuclear program between the US and its allies, on one hand, Tehran on the other, is obviously one of the things that we're most worried about this year. I know that you've sort of gone between pessimism and optimism over the past year. Where are you sort of sitting now, given what's happening in Vienna? Uh, but, you know, if uh, indeed both sides fail to compromise along these lines, I think there is another plan B option that is still better than all the other alternatives that we have discussed so far. And that is an interim agreement in which basically Iran would freeze the most worrisome aspects of its nuclear program. uh, And in return, the U.S. would provide Iran with partial sanctions relief. Uh, This is what happened in 2013 before JCPOA was finalized. Uh, uh, There was a joint plan of action in which there was a similar arrangement that created time and space for negotiating the comprehensive agreement. Uh, And this time around, too, uh, an interim agreement would be better uh, than the alternatives. Uh, Currently, just looking at the dynamics uh, in Vienna, and and although it's risky uh, to make predictions publicly, I wouldn't really put the odds of restoration of the JCPOA at more than 20%. Then there is also another 20% chance that uh, once it becomes clear that the deal is no longer restorable, that the parties might agree to an interim agreement. Uh, So that's 40% for a diplomatic settlement in total, and then 60% for all the uh, negative plan B scenarios that we talked about. Ali, that's a rather sobering note to end on. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Iran and the JCPOA, on our website, crisisgroup.org. Keep an eye out for the report. Again, as we said, it's out on Monday. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks very much to our producers, Sam Mednick and Kevin Murphy, and also to Finn Johnson. And thank you, of course, to all our listeners. Don't hesitate to get in touch. If you have a question or a comment, please do leave us a positive rating or review if you like the show. And join us next week for that episode on what we're most worried about, including the Iran nuclear crisis in the year ahead. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.